This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Unfortunately, OSHA does not see um, protecting employees as being cost prohibitive. There has to be some level of good faith effort to try and minimize the risk of exposure to elevated noise levels. Creating physical and psychological stress, um, other impacts, you know, reducing productivity, interfering with communication and concentration, and um, contributing further to potential workplace accidents and injuries. This week on the show, noise exposure might not be on your brewery's radar, but this is an area where an ounce of prevention is definitely worth a pound of cure. Hello, my name is Jonathan Bornschreger. I am a safety consultant with Blue Ridge Safety Consulting. Okay, raise your hand if there is anywhere in your brewery where hearing protection is used. So that could be earplugs or earmuffs anywhere in the brewery. Now, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, you can't see them, but everybody with a raised hand, their brewery is required by law to have a written hearing conservation program, aren't they? Well, yes and no. Um, The expectation is for folks to perform a job hazard assessment and um, analyze the risk to see what some of the noise levels are. If elevated levels are observed, then there is um, some hoops to jump through, including implementing an effective hearing conservation program. For the record, I wore earmuffs while preparing for this interview as I've determined both the intensity and duration of my children's voices to be problematic. But in all seriousness, hearing loss and ringing ears aren't the only issues here, right? Well, sure. Um, obviously, there, there can be some significant health effects that can be detrimental to folks potentially as a result of, of undesirable um, noise exposure. For example, exposure to high levels of noise can lead to permanent hearing loss, um, and unfortunately, neither surgery nor a hearing aid in some instances can correct these types of hearing losses. 
Um, short-term exposure can do things like um, leading to temporary changes in hearing, uh, where you kind of feel stuffed up or a, a ringing in your ears, which is called tinnitus. Many folks have experienced that, for example, going to a music concert or listening to your kids yelling at you, as you just mentioned. So the um, short-term problems may go away within a few minutes or hours after um, leaving the noise and not being further exposed. However, the con concern can be, um, in, especially in workplace environments, where there's repeated exposures to loud noise, this can certainly lead to permanent um, damage to your ears and or hearing loss. There's also like a, I guess, a sort of a psychological stress component as well, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, loud noise can even go as far as creating physical and psychological stress, um, other impacts, you know, reducing productivity, interfering with communication and concentration, and um, contributing further to potential workplace accidents and injuries by making it difficult to hear warning signals. For example, in the brewing industry where there's um, a lot of forklifts that might be um, traveling around, you may not be able to hear backup alarms or, or horns quite as easily. Okay. Now, if OSHA's noise exposure standard gets triggered, there's supposed to be a document that describes the roles, responsibilities, and, and methods to implement five key hearing conservation elements. What do you say we take a quick walk through those five elements? Absolutely. All right, well, let's start with exposure monitoring. What are the options for measurement? Well, um, there are, these days there's an app for everything, right? So there are some different um, noise apps that folks can use for screening purposes on their, their phone. They're pretty effective for screening to determine if you're looking at some elevated levels. If you start seeing some that are in excess of 85 decibels, then that may be a trigger to try and conduct further full work shift sampling. Um, and that's where utilizing someone like a third-party safety consultant to try and do a more comprehensive assessment to determine what that full um, work shift exposure is that's representative of the employees in that type of situation. I bet you can tell without a meter just from walking into a place when it's going to exceed the limits. Do you have any tips or obvious red flags or rules of thumb? Absolutely. A great rule of thumb is if you have to raise your voice above normal conversational level to hear a person speak or to communicate effectively with them uh, within approximately three feet of you, let's say a little bit more than arm's length, then there is potential for noise to be a workplace hazard. So that's a, a pretty crude screening tool. Okay. Let's get into the rules. Go ahead and give us the, the limits. So many of um, OSHA's permissible exposure limits, or PELs they're called, are based on an eight-hour work shift. Um, I know the reality is a lot of folks are not working necessarily an eight-hour shift, so you can, uh, there are some calculations you can do to determine to see if that dose is in excess of that. Currently, OSHA's requirement is if their duration is an eight-hour shift, the sound level for that average time-weighted average of time cannot exceed 90 decibels. Otherwise, there is a requirement to um, implement a hearing conservation program. And calculating and documenting noise exposure can get a little tricky. What are some of the issues there? Well, not to get too technical on you, hopefully, but there are some pieces of equipment that are out there that can get pretty high-tech and necessitate calibration prior to use and post-use, so making sure that it's um, effectively recording the data that needs to be done, as well as actually calculating the um, average. 
the the dose for that 90 decibels is, you know, for many folks, they're floating around the production area. And that may especially be the case in a brewery. They're not standing necessarily one piece of equipment at a time. So there's going to be peaks and valleys throughout the course of their shift where that exposure occurs. So um, considering that into the um, the variables is, is another consideration that can be a challenge as well, which is why relying on someone who is a subject matter expert on doing such sampling is, is critical. Do you want to talk about sort of, um, I guess, the issues that where I guess there's oftentimes errors uh, in, in regards to collecting or interpreting or interpreting um, the the data that's collected accurately or computing it and you know transferring it to the right, right amount of hours if the, the shift isn't exactly eight hours that sort of thing sure uh, the goal is to try and get an actual eight hour shift but again varying production levels depending upon uh, in the brewery industry d- depends on uh, how many barrels you're trying to get out the door at one time or, or cans or, or bottles, whatever the case may be. So it may be a four-hour shift as opposed to eight hours. So um, calculating the downtime and averaging that into the equation for that time-weighted average uh, may be necessary. So just to, simple, to simplify it, let's say an employee works a four-hour shift where they are doing some heavy production and are exposed to elevated noise levels. Well, then the remaining four hours need to be considered to determine what that actual average is for that eight-hour shift, which would further determine whether or not a hearing conservation program is in place or needs to be in place, and um, if hearing protection and training need to be implemented as well. Okay, so we've got exposure monitoring out of the way. Let's talk about noise reduction and control. What if my brewery just can't afford to do this? That's a great question. Unfortunately, OSHA does not see um, protecting employees as being cost prohibitive. There has to be some level of good faith effort to try and minimize the risk of exposure to elevated noise levels for employees. And that goes across the board, too, for other workplace hazards, but specifically for noise. Let's say um, there's a piece of equipment that's a conveyance system that's pneumatically driven by air that's extremely loud. Is there some way to Um, put a muffler on that piece of equipment or to enclose it or encapsulate it to minimize the amount of noise that's being generated where employees are being directly exposed. Coming up. In other words, they were unintentionally overexposing their employees by having a lot of loud background music playing. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. 
Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. And thanks also to Christian Hansen, suppliers of frozen liquid yeast. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash MBAA. There's one last sponsor I should mention, and that's More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. And if you like this show, be sure to thank all of our sponsors because it wouldn't be possible without their generous support. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar classifying the unknown, identifying organisms with affordable genetic sequencing November 10th. District Northwest meets virtually November 13th. District Pittsburgh will hold a live Facebook event November 16th. District Georgia meets November 17th at Bold Monk Brewing Company. District St. Louis has a virtual meeting November 19th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets November 19th. Our friend Gabriel Dominguez from episode 186 joins Sierra Nevada's Ken Grossman and others for a collaborative webinar put on by Master Brewers, ASBC, and the BA. The topic is Brewing CO2, a supercritical ingredient, utility, and byproduct. Gabriel's not going to like that title. You can register now for the December 3rd webinar via a link in the show notes. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers Association of the Americas offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Keep current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers today. Use discount code BEER20 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2020. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Now back to the show. And PPP is considered to be a last resort. Why is that? And what options do we need to exhaust before just using PPE? Yeah, exactly. The the goal is to follow what is referred to as a hierarchy of controls. What control mechanisms can be put in place to minimize or eliminate those hazards? First line of defense, which I just alluded to some options for, were engineering controls like mufflers on equipment, enclosures, sound dampening materials. Um, second line is is administrative controls, which could include things like rotation of employees. Instead of having them stand at one loud area for an eight-hour shift, maybe you can have them there for four and rotate another employee in. Or if you can restrict access to some of those areas. Let's say you had an administrative person in a front office area and you wanted to prevent them from going into the production floor, having a key card access only to some of those areas, or having written programs in place to minimize those risks. And as you just said, the last line of defense is PPE. The concern is there can be failures with employees with how to properly use some of those pieces of equipment, how to inspect it, how to maintain it correctly every time, 
And in my experience, some folks that especially use some of the earplugs may not be inserting them incorrectly. So effectively training employees on how to utilize PPE is, is really imperative. Okay, makes sense. Um, so here's a really great reason to make sure that employees never get exposed to the 85 plus um, level. Once that happens, the employer is then required to provide audiometric testing. Talk about that. The, the goal is to try and get a baseline established for employees as they enter that type of environment to see what their hearing levels are. And on an annual basis, to do an additional test to see if for some reason there has been a loss in hearing that may be associated with that workplace exposure. Um, from a cost perspective for employ- employers, um, that can be a recurring cost. So with the engineering type of controls, there may be some initial capital expense that would have to be put out there to eliminate or reduce those hazards. But having to implement and have an ongoing hearing conservation program, including things like audiometric testing, um, would, would be an additional ongoing capital expense. It's not enough to just buy a box of earplugs. The employer is required to give the employees options as well as adequate training. Talk about that. Sure. From a training standpoint, like with any type of work situation, and not just from a workplace safety perspective, you wouldn't want to just throw someone to the wolves without having them effectively trained on how to be productive and how to accomplish their job in a safe uh, and and productive manner. You know, quality and and, um, other aspects of production are very important as well, but safety is too. From a training perspective, yeah, you want to make sure that folks have the ability to understand what the limitations are with some of those hearing protection options, how to properly use them, uh, even as far as looking at the manufacturer's noise reduction rating to see if that is adequate to provide employees with a safe level of protection based on the levels that are measured. In terms of the different options that are out there, yeah, it's not one size fits all. Different um, facial features or Um, structures of of people's heads might um, prohibit them from being able to use one type or another. So the expectation from a regulatory standpoint with OSHA is to provide at least two options, be they one type of muffs and one type of plugs. Um, But there are certain unique situations where uh, individuals need to, to have different options that are out there to make sure that they are effectively protected. In terms of training of employees, excuse me, it's important to, uh, understand what, again, the limitations are, the need to wear hearing protection, and how it will hopefully effectively uh, mitigate their risk and minimize their exposure to elevated noise levels to prevent them from having a, a uh, shift in their baseline hearing that was established during that annual audiogram. Just like in food safety, if it didn't get written down, it didn't happen. What are the record-keeping requirements for breweries? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Document, document, document. If it's not documented, it didn't happen in many regulatory instances and in food safety and in the brewery industry and from a uh, OSHA regulatory standpoint. In terms of record-keeping, um, things that are expected to be retained on, on those records are the name and the job classification of the employee, the date that that audiogram was conducted, the examiner's name was, you would want someone who's, who's competent and uh, effectively trained on how to interpret those results. 
the date uh, that the equipment was calibrated for conducting those audiograms, and the actual employee's noise exposure assessment. You know, we, uh, as we age, we go through the natural process of having hearing loss go over time. It's called presbycosis. So um, if you have a new employee who may be a little more aged than some new hires that uh, could be younger and in their 20s, then their baseline might be a little bit different than other folks. So having that record of what some of their um, baseline data is, is, is really important. In terms of those records, yeah, they need to be retained for the duration of the employee's employment while they're with that uh, organization. And if for some reason there is a change in their hearing levels during that annual audiogram, they need to be notified of some of that. Um, I suggest keeping some of that type of information in a, a private um, file within the HR office to um, make sure it's secured and only accessible to employees. Uh, also, beginning in January 2003, OSHA was requiring employers to record work-related hearing loss cases where an employee's hearing test shows that there is a decrease in hearing. So those, <clears throat> as of 2003, were considered as OSHA recordable incidents. That can also have an impact from a workers' compensation uh, standpoint for potential claims. If there is a standard threshold shift or a hearing loss in uh, those audiograms, then the advice of a physician or some type of licensed healthcare professional should be sought to try and determine if it was indeed work-related or if there were other natural causes that contributed to that hearing loss. So in that 2003 requirement, that's what basically you have to report it on the, on the OSHA 300 log, right? Correct. The okay. workplace and injury and illness log, also known as the OSHA 300 log. That's exactly right. All right. Cool. Jonathan, people are always looking for shortcuts. If I heard this podcast, I'd be pretty tempted to attempt to mitigate all noise that I thought would probably end up being problematic before I started formal testing. Is that a terrible idea? Because it seems like life gets a lot simpler if I can just stay under the limits and avoid the requirements to create a hearing conservation program. I think that's that's a, a admirable goal to try and, and achieve, absolutely, to try and take a proactive, not reactive approach. Let's try and address this hazard if we know it's a hazard before an undesirable outcome occurs. So absolutely, if for screening purposes, you determine that there are areas with elevated noise levels, um, if you can consult uh, internally with your own maintenance staff or perhaps uh, an engineering designer or a safety and health professional, to try and alleviate or minimize those risks through certain controls. Uh, absolutely, taking that proactive approach is a great idea because there can certainly be significant cost implications in having to address some of those challenges after the fact. What I often suggest is planning through design. As you're going <clears throat> through the production process and trying to design the layout of your facility, try and look ahead to see if there's going to be any potential issues where there are hazards that are present, including but not limited to noise and specific to noise. If there are issues and you can minimize or mitigate those risks from a proactive standpoint, by some of those controls that I mentioned earlier with enclosures or sound damping devices, by all means, that uh, is certainly a good option to try and pursue. Let's talk about a touchy subject. A lot of brewers like listening to music <laughs> or better yet podcasts on their job. We've all been in a brewery that just drowns out the bottling line by blasting the radio. 
how can we work music into the equation or is that topic just DOA? And what about earbuds or other options for individuals? You know, that's a really challenging question. And I have recently done some noise sampling for a uh, local brewer where that was an interesting conversation that I had with uh, the head brewer because the discussion was that it helped his employees be more motivated, more lively and more productive when there was uh, exciting music that was playing in the background. Uh, however, the, the challenge was it resulted in some elevated noise levels that were in excess of some of these limits that we've been discussing. So, uh, in other words, they were unintentionally overexposing their employees by having a lot of loud background music playing. The compromise that we kind of came up with was to uh, turn it down to a little bit of a lower level so that they could have something to, to jam out to while they're, they're brewing, but uh, not in excess of some of those uh, levels that are discouraged from, from OSHA from being in excess. Uh, you wouldn't want to intentionally do that to to overinflate what the exposure is and to have undesirable health effects potentially to employees down the road. In terms of earbuds, yeah, that can be another tough one too. There are some um, sound dampening devices or, or sound noise canceling type of headphones that are out there that some folks can utilize that will uh, minimize that risk of exposure. But I've seen situations too where people are wearing earbuds uh, with music and then earmuffs over top of that. And unfortunately, that has an undesirable effect because it can increase those sound levels even more so by kind of enclosing those earbuds and increasing the exposure to employees. So that is something that OSHA has kind of taken the standpoint of discouraging folks to uh, permit as employers to, to allow their employees to do such a thing. Do you ever walk into a facility and just start yelling, too much noise? I would, I would totally do that if I had your job. <laughs> uh, I have not yet. I, I try and be a little more tactful than that, but the temptation has been there. No, I, I usually uh, allow that for the kids instead of my, uh, my, my clients. <laughs> cool. All right, Jonathan, well, that's all the questions I have. Um, is there anything that we missed that you um, thought we should mention? Uh, I don't think so. Just to summarize again, um, I, I think it's important that uh, all employers take a proactive approach to try and addressing job hazards in the workplace to mitigate some of those risks and to ensure that there's compliance with applicable uh, workplace safety regulations, as well as, uh, you know, there's proven return on investment with implementing some of these things. With having safety programs in place, there's increased morale, uh, less uh, turnover of employees, retaining them. Um, obviously, there's other direct costs that can be associated with having injuries and illnesses that occur and having to pay workers' compensation claims and things of that nature. So I would encourage everyone to try and take a, that proactive approach to address or mitigate some of these hazards. To me, it's a core value uh, of any organization. And hopefully um, by having that approach, your employees will buy into that and it will motivate them to do a better job. That was Jonathan Borntrager here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to get a better handle on the requirements and how to be more proactive, Check the show notes for a link to Jonathan's article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. 
If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use the promo code BEER20 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues if you register before the end of the year. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Standard.